Good morning. I uh, was a joy to sing those songs with you. Uh, they <clears throat> really set up uh, some of the things that we're going to be thinking about today. Uh, Lord, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. The wonder that the Son of God would come to the place, as we're going to find today, having entered into temptation, but coming out sinless and spotless, in order that he might be to us that faithful high priest mediating between us and God. Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. This is a tremendous, tremendous passage that we're going to consider today. You can open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Uh, we began a couple of weeks ago a series on the life of Christ. In fact, this is the fourth lesson on the life of Christ. So what we're doing, as many of you I'm sure are aware, is we're looking at the Gospels to consider specifics concerning the life of this man, uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 4 today. Now, I'm going to do my best to um, use a PowerPoint. And I just ask that you bear with me because sometimes my words get going a little bit faster than my finger does and I, I can kind of uh, miss this. Now, I'm not progressing there, but uh, if you would uh, progress it for me, I would appreciate it. Okay, so again, we're in a series on the life of Christ. So we've already considered uh, the birth of Christ. We looked at Matthew chapter 1. We also considered that scene in Matthew chapter 2, uh, where the wise men would bring gifts and present them to uh, uh, the child king. And then last week, we considered uh, uh, Matthew chapter 3, and I believe Luke chapter 3 as well, which was the baptism of Christ. So I'm still not progressing there. And I am using the down arrow. Okay, I'm going to try it here. Let's see. Okay, will you progress it for me? What we're going to do this morning uh, is we're going to consider uh, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to go through these items that are going to be laid out here. So go ahead and progress that. First, we're going to talk about the background of Matthew chapter 4. The background. Now, Matthew chapter 4 is a story concerning the temptation of Christ, as hopefully you see up there. So that's the core of it, the temptation of Christ. And I want you to know at the outset uh, that Christ entered into temptation, but he came out sinless. He was victorious over sin, okay? His ultimate victory would come at Calvary when he defeated sin once and for all. And so many of you sitting here today, I trust, have been freed from the penalty of sin because of what Christ did at Calvary. But what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 4 is that practically he also uh, uh, overcame temptation, that sin had no hold on him. And, and he did it in such a way that you and I can look and can model what he did. I don't know about you, but I want not only to have new life, but I want to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 would reference that. You don't need to turn there, but Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read you one verse which says this. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That is speaking to anyone who has come to know Christ as Savior. 
to anyone who has received him by faith. There is this image here in Romans chapter 6, which says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father of the Father. Listen to this. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. I don't know about you. But I want to walk in newness of life. I possess new life. I know that. Uh, 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 the Bible tells us if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. I'm a new creation in Christ. But, but I want to live like it. I want to walk like it. I want to walk in newness of life. And, and, and the Lord himself, the Lord himself is going to illustrate for us in Matthew chapter 4 what it is to face temptation but to endure temptation. Did you know that temptation is not sin? Temptation is not sin. Succumbing to temptation is sin, but temptation is not sin. Did you know that you can have victory over sin by enduring temptation? Every sin basically starts with temptation of some sort or another. Don't you want that? I want that. I don't want to be, as Romans 6 says, a slave to sin. I've been, I've been set free from sin, Romans 6 says, and I want to walk in newness of life. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus lives out for us in Matthew chapter 4. Now, um, let's see if this works here. There we go. Thank you very much. So we're going to consider it in this fashion, and I'm going to go as quickly as I can. I want to talk briefly about the background of Matthew chapter 4. Then we're going to look at the setting of Matthew chapter 4. That is, uh, what's the placement of it? Then we're going to talk briefly about the temptations and about the responses. Of course, those are Christ's responses. And then perhaps everybody's favorite part of every message, we're going to conclude, number five. So the background is this. And I want you to see this. This is very important. And I'm glad I see lots of visiting faces and new faces. Before we can really understand, or in order to really understand the life of Christ, we need to have an answer to this question. The question is, I'm going to go through this to get to this next one. Okay. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? Now, look at Matthew chapter 1 and look at the way that the book starts. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So here we are presented at the very outset to this man, Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. So whose son is he? Well, by that verse, you, you have a correct answer. He's the son of David. That is true. He's the son of David. But look forward for a moment at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I didn't make this question up. Uh, this question comes straight out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. Whose son is he? It says this in Matthew 22 and verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, they said to him, He's the son of David. Jesus said to them, How then 
Does David in the spirit call him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Whose son is he? Is he the son of David? He is the son of David. But what we find in the gospel accounts is that this man was indeed more than the son of David, if I could use that term. He was the greater son of David, the greatest son of David. He was more than just of the seed of David. Do you want to know something? David had had many, many sons. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, what we have is a bridge, so to speak, From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have a bridge of names. That's a genealogy we considered a few weeks ago. And what we have, what we find there are many, many sons, many sons of David. But, but maybe someone reads Matthew chapter one and they say, Jesus Christ, the son of David. What's the big deal? David's had many sons that have come and gone. In fact, David has had many sons that have come, but have failed. They have never lived up to the promises of God that would be found in the Messiah. So whose son is he? He is the son of David. But this you need to understand. He is more than the son of David. Many of David's sons came and they went and they, 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 they never lived up to what the Messiah was to do. They failed. But this son, Oh, I want to tell you this son, he would never fail. Why is it that Jesus would never fail? And here I'm catching up on my clicks. I'm going to give you the answer. It's up there on the screen. He would never fail because he is the son of God. This we need to understand, brothers and sisters, friends, if you're visiting here today, this is a critical truth. In fact, perhaps one of the greatest questions that could ever be asked, whose son is he? And what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about him? Whose son is he? He is the son of David, but he is the son of God. Now, last week, we ended with this verse. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. I want to suggest to you that this is one of the greatest themes that runs throughout the Gospels, including the Gospel of Matthew, specifically the Gospel of John, where we recognize that he is emphasizing the deity of Christ. But it is found in in each of the Gospels, and it is absolutely necessary. Matthew chapter 3 says this in verse 16, When he, that is Jesus, had been baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove upon a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The son of David. Yes, indeed. And that was necessary. And important. I'm not minimizing it. But more than the son of David, this man was 
is the son of God. That's Matthew chapter three, Matthew chapter two, as we find this theme all the way throughout the gospel, Matthew chapter two in verse 15 says this, or verse 14 says, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother. This is regarding Joseph uh, by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be spoken, uh, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying out of Egypt, I have called my son, the son of God. That's the Lord speaking. What is it, you may ask, that the term means? Well, I would not dare to get into a whole session uh, as to try to define what it means. But in its simplest terms, the son of God, as presented in the Gospels, is a declaration That this man is God in the flesh. That's, that's what it's proclaiming. Now, it would take and it will take each of us our own wrestling with and studying of the scriptures to be convinced of that. But that is what it's declaring. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, which says this. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Whose son is he? He is the son of God. This is made evidently clear throughout the scriptures, specifically the gospels and including the gospel of Matthew. When we come to Matthew chapter four, which is our text for today, look at verse three. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. One of the key factors that we find in Matthew chapter four, a key point is concerning the deity of Christ. Whose son is he? He is the son of God. That's what the word, that's the way the word of God presents him. And so then I turn the question around to you as Christ did. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The theme goes all the way out throughout the gospel of Matthew. And uh, I just want to notate a couple of highlighted passages. This is the background of this. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And I skipped over several other references, but I just want to notate the highlighted ones. Matthew chapter 16. And so Jesus says in verse 15, he said to them, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of David. Yes, but more than the son of David the son of God look all the way to the end of his life. We're considering the life of Christ. I'm skimming forward to the end of the life of Christ in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. And look at what is being called into question here in Matthew 26 at the end of the life of Christ. I'm just doing this brothers, sisters, to uh, emphasize to you the importance of uh, this truth. 
Matthew 26 and verse 62 says this, the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? Speaking to Christ, what is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. And then look at the final reference to this title in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 27 and verse 54. As Jesus hung upon the cross and those who stood by were onlookers at this incredible scene. Listen to the words that are recorded here. Matthew 27 and verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. Truly, this was the son of God. That's the final declaration in the book of Matthew including the title, the son of God. And the declaration was truly, this was the son of God. If we're going to appropriately understand the life of Christ, we must be able to answer the question that Jesus posed to the men of that day. Whose son is he? Now let's go back to Matthew chapter four. That is the background uh, leading up to this. As you're aware, as I already read, Matthew chapter 3, the uh, the passage closes with this verse in verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, There's a chapter break there, but we need to continue the flow to really get the emphasis of this. Jesus is baptized. He comes up from the water. Uh, The spirit of God descends upon him. A voice comes from heaven. This is quite miraculous saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. I want to add a note there, and I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself. But when Satan says, if you are the son of God, it is basically understood by every uh, commentator and scholar that I've read and listened to that what he's doing here is not questioning the deity of Jesus. He's not, he's not questioning whether he is the son of God, but he's creating an argument. It's an, if then we do this often in our day today, we use at times, if in the sense of doubt, But we use the word if also at times in the sense of argument. This is not the if of doubt, but this is the if of argument. I'm going to give you an illustration. If my child were to come to me and say to me, "Uh, Daddy, look, Grandma gave me a piece of candy. 
I might respond to them something like this. Well, if grandma gave you the candy, then you should go and say thank you. What I'm doing there is not so much doubting that grandma gave the piece of candy, but I'm building an argument. Well, that's exactly what Satan is doing here. Many have said that it could be translated, since you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. We've considered the background leading into this. We're going to talk briefly about the setting. The setting we find, as we've just read, uh, is that this is an event that the Spirit of God was orchestrating. Now, this may be difficult for us to understand, or at least at face value. It says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a, a scenario that the Spirit of God was orchestrating. Matthew chapter 3 He's proclaimed to be the son of God by a voice from heaven. Matthew chapter four, you could say in many senses, he's proven to be the son of God. When he comes victorious from this temptation, while Satan intended to entice him to evil, to sin, the spirit of God, God was orchestrating this to prove that he was indeed the son of God, sinless blameless, faultless. This is the setting that we're considering. So you may ask why, why is it that the spirit would orchestrate such a meeting? Why would God be bringing this together? I'm going to give you two reasons just briefly. I've already mentioned one. It was for proving to prove that he was the son of God. The other is for providing to provide to us an example in that sense that we should follow in his steps And he provides much more than that, actually. We'll get into that a little bit more later. So the Spirit of God is orchestrating this a divine meeting, so to speak, between the man, Christ Jesus, and Satan himself. You do remember that this is not the first time, and hear me out, that God's man had come face to face with Satan. God had placed another man on earth, hadn't he? The first man, Adam, we find in the Bible, is contrasted with with the last Adam, the second man, Jesus. God had placed Adam in a garden, you recall. This is like Sunday school, right? Fundamentals. And the, the serpent came to him through Eve and would entice him to sin. And it, there's a sense in which it didn't take much, did it? Well, with Christ... He goes from food 
uh, uh, to pride, to elevating in the sequence of temptations, to offering him all the kingdoms of the world. With Adam, it just took the food, right? I mean, he just presented it to him. Uh, 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 look at this delightful food, and they fell. So this was not the first time that God's man had come face to face with temptation from Satan himself. And in the first case, uh, uh, there was failure, failure. The scripture says, in Adam, all die, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. First Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter five are critical texts that contrast the first man, Adam, and the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have time to go into it in detail, but it is indeed uh, 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 a very interesting thing, and it is certainly part of what's going on here. But we would not have time to go into that in much more detail. So, while the Spirit was orchestrating this divine meeting for proving and for providing, Satan was opportunistic. Uh, some say if Satan could have got out, gotten out of this, he would have. But the Spirit of God would have it no other way. The Spirit of God divinely orchestrated this so that the, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, could be proven as the Son of God. I want you to remember a couple of practical things. Temptation won't be fair, so to speak. Listen to what it says in verse 2. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him. This is the setting that we find this in. Jesus, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights, the other gospel accounts seem to indicate that he was being tested this whole entire time. And here, now, in these most unfair of circumstances, Satan is going to come and give his last-ditch effort, going to put before him everything he could possibly think of in order to get this man to fail. But we know he would not fail. Why? Because the son of David, the son of man, is the son of God. So um, I'm going to breeze through these briefly. I want to remind you as well that temptation will come. Listen. Temptation is a part of our lives. It is a wonder to me that Jesus would illustrate this for us so vividly. But you and I need to remember that temptation is a real part of our lives. This is the, a daily part of our lives. The, what I want you to understand, and I know I don't have to convince you of this, obviously, temptation is going to come. When the tempter came, it's going to come. But this I want you to know. Temptation can be overcome. I want to read you one verse as we get into this because I don't want to forget this. If there's something I want you to remember today, I want you to know that temptation can be overcome. Listen to what it says in James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Temptation will come. Temptation is a part of what it is to be a human on planet earth. But temptation in and of itself is not sin. To be enticed to do evil is not yet to do evil. And I want to encourage you today. Temptation can be endured. 
It can be escaped, the scripture says. Temptation can be overcome. You can live a life of victorious uh, uh, freedom in Christ. Now, that's the setting. Uh, now, let's talk briefly about the temptations. Actually, this will be probably more than brief. This is the meat of this. Here's what I want you to see. There are three temptations. Hopefully you caught that. There are three temptations. And the first thing I want you to note is that the temptations were escalating in intensity and in reward. First, Satan starts with food. He says, uh, command that these stones become bread. Okay? Next, Satan goes in verse 6 and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Not just simple food, but here he's offering to Jesus extensive fame. But it goes beyond that. And it says later in verse 9, and he said to him, all these things I will give to you. I'm sorry, verse 8 showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. The temptations were escalating in their intensity and in their supposed reward. Notice that it says in verse 1, Jesus was led up into the wilderness. Notice in verse 5, the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Notice in verse 8, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. It is true that in our lives, temptation will often become worse and worse before it becomes better. We are called upon in the scripture to resist the devil. Sometimes it's difficult because we don't know exactly how long we're going to have to resist for. We do recognize that temptation is a struggle throughout all of life and that temptations will often build on one another, one after the next. But there is escape with Christ. And the next thing I want you to recognize is that the, te- the three temptations were strategic in their approach and delivery. What do I mean by that? Well, Although Christ was led up, Satan kept his eyes looking down. It says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Certainly as he looked down upon the floor next to him. It says in verse 5, The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. It says again in verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. No doubt, looking out, looking down. Satan is strategic in his approach. He will do whatever he can to entice us to evil. As these temptations escalated, they climaxed with Satan calling on Christ to look upon, to look out on all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan is no fool. He is strategic in his approach 
and delivery. I want you to notice as well something else regarding Satan's approach. There is a sense in which it is the same old approach that Satan has used from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, I'll read this to you. It says this. It says, when the woman saw, Genesis 3, 6, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Part of the strategy of Satan's temptations was that he would call upon these three areas of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. First John 2 says uh, this, says, for all that is in the world, excuse me as you get to it, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Satan was very strategic in his approach in presenting these to the Savior. He first offers him bread, the lusts of the flesh. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Think about that for a moment. Here was the Savior, weary and hungry, no doubt uh, uh, famished 40 days and 40 nights without food. And Satan would say to him these words, since you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. What was wrong with that? He was hungry, wasn't he? I mean, I could imagine Satan saying to him, you are hungry, aren't you? Command that these stones become bread as Satan appealed to his flesh. Then he takes him up into the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. What a spectacle this would be. Take yourself up to the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down. Hey, I've seen on the news at times footage of people who have done this very thing. In sad situations at times, they come to the end of themselves and they take and place themselves up on a high pinnacle. And the crowds would gather, sometimes news cameras and so forth. Imagine the sight this would be, what Satan was saying. Prove yourself that you're the son of God. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. The pride of life. And then lastly, of uh, the three temptations, the lust of the eyes. He says uh, in uh, verse 8, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. One thing I want you to keep in mind is this. In First Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I have come in contact with some who seem to think that they can tamper 
with the lusts of the flesh, with the lusts of the eyes. They can fill themselves up with the cravings of their flesh and it not affect their soul, it not affect their heart, it not affect their mind. Be warned that uh, the, the, the lusts of the flesh, these things, if we succumb to them, they will affect the soul. And so uh, he presents to him the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, although the last two are switched in their order, the pride of life and the lust of eyes. Now, uh, I want you to keep in mind as well that what he's presented to him in these temptations are temptations that are deceptive in their presentation and in their promise. And this is, uh, uh, the I believe, the main point of the passage. He says to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. What he's in essence saying is, you are the Son of God, aren't you? You are hungry, aren't you? Well, here are some stones. Turn them into bread. What he's saying to the man, Christ Jesus, he's saying, help yourself. Help yourself. Don't wait on your Father in heaven. Don't wait on the God who sent you. But help yourself. You are hungry, aren't you? Don't you have the power to do this? Well, help yourself. I mean, what's wrong with it? Your your, your belly is hungry? Go ahead and take it. Help yourself. Deception. Then he would say to him in the second one, If you are the Son of God, chapter 4, verse 6, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Here he's emphasizing not so much help yourself, but prove yourself. If in the first case, Satan's questioning God's provision, in the second case, Satan is questioning God's plan. Prove yourself. And in the last one, he's going to say to him, give to yourself. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. They're yours. You want them? Take them for yourself. Give them to yourself. Think about this for a minute. And we're going to apply this to our lives. In each of the temptations, in each of the temptations, Satan is calling on the man, Christ Jesus, who subjected himself to the will of the Father to take what is rightfully his, but to take it now. To take it now. Don't wait. Here you are. It's right before you. Take it now. Would you do that? In each of the temptations, Satan offers to the man, Christ Jesus. He is the son of God, but he's the man, Christ Jesus. He offers to him something that the father would later give to him. But he says, take it now. We were reminded this morning about waiting on the Lord. By the end of the story, the food that he longed for is given to him. Look at what verse 11 says. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. No doubt providing to the man Christ Jesus his physical needs. In each case, Satan offers to the man Christ Jesus that which the Father would later give to him. But Satan says, take it now. Take it now. Don't wait on the will of your Father. Take it now. Think about the second temptation for a moment. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down and the angels will bear you up. Prove yourself, but do it now. There would come a day when the man, Christ Jesus, would be brought down to the lowest point that one could ever be brought, and it was all in the will of the Father. But you know what Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says? It says, but he was declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Satan says, cast yourself down. The angels will lift you up. But God would say, no, 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 no. Not in this time and not in this way. He will be brought down to the lowest point that any could ever be brought. But I will bring him up. Acts chapter 2 says that not only was he resurrected, but that he was exalted to the right hand of God. He would be brought down, but God would bring him up. And in the last one, Satan says to him in the third temptation, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You want them? Take them now. Don't wait on the Lord. Don't wait on the will of your father in heaven. You can have them now if you want them. Even these the father has for the son. So by the end of the story, the provision that he needed is given to him. By the end of his life, he's been brought down and then lifted up and declared proven to be the son of God, which was what Satan was calling him to do in the second temptation. And it has not happened yet, but there will come a day, Revelation chapter 11 says, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. These kingdoms belong to him. But Satan would say, take them now. Take them now. If there's one thing I want to emphasize to you today, it's this. Wait on the Lord. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what situations you're in. I don't know what the Lord has for you in your life. But some of the biggest most ferocious temptations that we face are not the forbidden things, but they're things which God may have for us, but just not now, just not now. Will you wait on the Lord?
Will you wait on the Lord? And while you're waiting, live by his word. The Lord Jesus says in the first temptation, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. While you're waiting, be living and by his word. Will you trust him? Can you trust the character of God? Satan called into question here to the son of God, the character of God, the character of his father, as he put before him these temptations. Can you trust the character of God? Can you believe his word? Can you stand upon his word? Hey, think about this. The son of God knew the word of God. Each time as the Lord Jesus uh, 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 deals with the temptations of Satan, he says these three words. It is written. If the son of God needed the word of God to overcome the fiery darts of the wicked one, I'm going to suggest to you that you and I indeed need the word of God. What he's done here for us is the son of God has responded in a way that you and I can follow his footsteps. You say, but wait a minute, the son of God, supernatural power. But that's not how he responded. He didn't immediately call angels down to rid himself of Satan. He didn't just cast Satan out of his presence like he could have as the son of God. But he says this, referring to himself, man shall not live by bread alone. You see what he's done? He has put himself in your place. He's put himself in my place. He has left for us an example that we could follow in his steps. The son of God dealing with the temptations of Satan as the man of God. I want to be a man of God. I want to follow in his steps. Each time we're out of time, but each time look at the temptations and notice that he responds not as the son of God, though indeed he was, and it's critical, but he responds as man. As he quotes back to Satan scripture that applies to man. He wasn't telling Satan, you shall not tempt me, the Lord your God. He was saying, me, man, will not tempt my Lord God. You see what he's done? Put himself in the place of man. Well, um, I left the rest of the PowerPoint there. I want to close with one final thought. And I hope that this has been helpful to you today to understand that you can endure temptation by the word of God. If you will wait on him, if you will trust him, if you will know his word, not just know it, but understand it. Christ understood it and he applied it. He obeyed it. I want to close with one final thought and I appreciate your patience. Think about this for a moment. Here was the son of God dealing with Satan as the man, Christ Jesus. Do you know what title Jesus ascribes to himself 
more than any other title in the whole scriptures. I'm going to give you a clue. Two clues. It's not the son of David emphasizing his royalty and his authority. It is not the son of God emphasizing his deity and his divinity. But it is the son of man. The son of man. The son of God became the son of man. That the sons of men might be made sons of God. He has put himself in your place. Put himself in my place, having taken the likeness of sinful flesh. He he came in appearance as a man. He humbled himself for you and for me. As the son of God alone, he could not die. But as the son of man, he could. He shed his blood for you. And for those that know him, Listen to these beautiful, beautiful words. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a double negative. Cancels itself out. So you could say, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, as you are, as I am, yet without sin. He took that place for you to leave an example for you, for me, that we could go to him, our great high priest. Listen to the effect of that verse. Hebrews 4, the following verse in verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Are you in a time of need today? You have a man in glory who has endured temptation, went all the way to the cross as the man to die on your behalf, and he's there interceding for you. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What a wonderful wonderful savior our father we do thank you as we have opened your word today and we've considered your beloved son as you declared from heaven indeed he is the son of god we recognize that he took the place of man having come uh, uh, in appearance as a man he humbled himself became obedient to death even the death of the cross what a wonder What a wonder this is. What a merciful and gracious and glorious God you are. Thank you for what you've given to us in your word. As we can look and see things that apply to our daily lives. We all deal with these temptations. Father, you know this. We want to overcome, to resist, to endure temptation, to receive the crown of life. As we look back at our Savior and the way he did it, what a joy. We give you thanks. We ask your blessing upon us as we part in Jesus' name. Amen.